For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Preparing for Atonement. Mr. Steele. Anything wrong with singing up here? You get really hot. <laughs> As the door slowly closed shut, the light from the outer court began to narrow and eventually fade until all that was left was the dim flicker of the oil lamps dotted around the sanctuary. Slowly, over the hours, or perhaps even days, each one of these lamps, their fuel depleted, began to fade until, finally, the last flickering flame in that great hall was extinguished. Every once in a while, the door would open, and figures would be seen in that sharp, contrasting light, maybe placing something inside the door, and then hurriedly closing it and going away. Discarding something into that place that was once filled with the prayers of the people. The great hall that at its completion served as a stage for a glorious prayer of dedication. All of that had been forgotten. This place of meeting was abandoned, discarded, it had become a place for rubbish and emptiness. Incense was no longer burned. Praise was no longer offered. Only silence and darkness filled that holiest of places. The great meeting place itself began to decay. The very structure of the building began to fall. Its great doors seizing up, its walls and ornaments beginning to fade from lack of care and lack of maintenance. And over the years, layer upon layer of dust gathered on top of all its sacred ornaments. That was until a man, man named Hezekiah was made king. The place I'm referring to was the temple, Solomon's temple. And that scenario that I just gave you may well have been how it happened. Slowly, over time, the center of godly worship fell into disuse and neglect. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, and verse 1, we read, Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, and the daughter of Ze uh, Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. Hezekiah ruled from about 727 to 698 BC. He came to the throne at a time when Judah was diminished, and Jerusalem was diminished. Long gone were the glory days of David and Solomon and even a few of the kings after that. That had long since passed and the land was very much weakened. 
They were, however, able to hold out against the Assyrians, but not all the time. There were skirmishes. There were invasions. Unlike Israel of the north, though, they were able to hold out. And Israel in the north completely fell in 722 BC. Hezekiah was one of those rarities in the history of Judah and Israel. Do you know what that was? He was a good king. He was a good king. I heard it said one time by a, a, a preacher that the history of the kings of Judah and Israel were bad, bad, and worse. And that was unfortunately true. Yet Hezekiah did what was right according to God. He was by no means perfect, but he was given more than a passing grade. He did what was right. In fact, from the very beginning of his reign, he set out to obey God. We see that he looks to return to the kingdom of Judah, the central worship of the one true God. And although the Chronicles, or through the Chronicles rather, we can see that just how bad things had gotten, and how much work he had ahead of him to restore this. In verse 3 it says, In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And then he brought the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square. And they said to him, or it said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now sanctify yourselves. Sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from this holy place. There was rubbish in this holy place. It's almost impossible to believe that the holy place was in such decay and full of rubbish as you could read debris. And if they had not just thrown trash in there deliberately, at the very least it had been so neglected that it had just decayed. Decayed on its own. To the point that masonry, I'm sure, was probably cracking falling down, plaster work falling down, ornaments knocked over and broken, curtains or whatever other decorations just wearing out, old, unused, disintegrating. The holy place of God, the place that was once the dream of David. Remember how much he dreamed to build that place. And then his son built it in all of its glory, all of its splendor, it was gone. It was falling down, filled with rubbish. To put it into context, it would be like us closing the doors, let's say, on Congress. Closing the doors on Congress, throwing away the key. Tempting, I know. But for an entire nation to forget Congress, to forget what was done there, to forget the great speeches that were given there, the great legislation that was passed there that freed men and women, that set a nation on the course of history and its westward expansion. Imagine, oh yeah, I think I may have heard something about Congress. 
Really? That forgotten? It seems almost inconceivable, as I said, that something like this could happen, and yet it did. And as we as Christians should take that as a warning. Take this disuse, this collapse, as a warning. That if it could happen to a nation, and not just any nation, the nation, God's people, if it could happen to them, then could it happen to us? I think so. Verse 6, he says, For our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the, in the eyes of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him. They have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and turned their backs on him. That in total contrast to the prayer that Solomon prayed. You remember that beautiful prayer? Let's read part of it in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant in his supplication. O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. That your eyes may be opened toward this temple night and day. Toward this place of which you said, my name shall be there. His name, God's name, is there in this temple. That you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. And may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place. Here in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Just beautiful, one of my favorite parts of that prayer. Just beautiful dedication. Solomon knew that this temple, no matter how glorious, no matter how ornate, no matter how great, he knew it could not hold the Creator. And yet God did in many ways inhabit that house, didn't he? He was there. He did place his name in this beautiful temple. It was a sign that he was dwelling amongst his people, that he was with them, that he was near to them, protecting them, looking out for them, having their best interests at heart, that he was going to stay with them no matter what happens. No matter what happens to the nation, he was going to stay with them. And he did just that. Patiently, waiting, hoping, will somebody open the door and come in and find me here. That they would come to their senses and return to him. But for us, in our faith, in our Christianity, we have no temple. We have no physical place that we need to go to, to offer sacrifices, to offer prayers. We don't need to do those things. And there are many reasons why we don't need to do those things. Chief being Christ, our Savior, our Passover. 
But one of the other reasons that we don't need to go to a place to worship God is because we are the temple. We are that holy place. We are the temple of God. Right here. Right there. We are the place where he dwells. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, he says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. We are that temple. You're God's temple. You are his dwelling place, his sanctuary. Let me ask you a question. How's it going in there? How is it in the temple of God? Is there debris laying around? Is it falling into disrepair, disuse? Can you find your way to it? You know where it is? How is the temple of God in us? You know, this story of Hezekiah's revival, the restoration of what we call Solomon's temple, I think is very relevant to us as Christians. It serves as a narrative that we can place our lives onto and examine ourselves. It is so easy to let our temple fall into disuse. So easy. And it's even easier to allow the idols of this world to get placed inside. Inside that holiest of places. You know, we think, how could they have done that? And yet we can do the same, same thing. Maybe even easier. We don't need about 14 people to lift some idol into the temple. We can just bring it in from the world. You may be wondering, well, what's the idol? The idol is whatever you would not want God to see in his temple. We know what they are. We know what those idols are. It is a, something that we would not be comfortable placing next to God in our hearts. Hezekiah found a people and a priesthood that had really just forgotten the prayer of Solomon. And more importantly, its promise. Yet God had not forget, forgotten that promise. He had remembered. Even with that lost memory, as we see, the promise was still there for the taking. They just had to take it. After all of that neglect and sin and rejection, God was still willing to help, just as he is with us. Back in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, Hezekiah continues. He says, have they also shut up the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel? Therefore the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, to jeering, as you see with your own eyes. They knew what he was talking about. They could see the fruits of this rejection of God. 
this disuse of the temple. You know they saw it. They experienced it. They lived this. Maybe from time to time they may have wondered, well, why is all this trouble happening to us? But once Hezekiah brought it to their attention, there would be no argument. They would know. They would know why it happened to them. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, our wives are in captivity. Was this poetic? Oh, this was real. This really happened to these people. You know, Judah was still somewhat intact. Jerusalem was still somewhat intact. But there were incursions. And even discounting those incursions from the Assyrians, we find that there was a lot of the other tribes of Israel, the northern tribes that escaped south. They got out of there, leaving their homes. They were refugees, leaving their fam family and friends, leaving them behind, maybe even taken into captivity, killed. They experienced this. You know, I think it's kind of ironic, or stupid, one of those. But all this excitement and this political mayhem going on and trying to figure out how the West can punish Syria for its crimes in using chemical weapons. There's about 1,400, the last number I heard, people that were killed and in many, many, probably more thousands injured. There's been 100,000 people killed in that conflict from the start. Something's wrong with this picture. If you're going to do something about it, what about the 100,000 that have been killed? Bombs kill just as well as gas. But yet, they are in the same lands today where these people were, where their husbands and wives and children and fathers were killed or taken into captivity. This is very real. Families decimated. Livelihoods destroyed. Homes and dreams taken away. It's easy sometimes to overlook the real human tragedies that take place in the Bible because, well, they're long since dead. But they were just like you and I. They were just like us. They had dreams for their life. They had concerns for their children and their parents. They had a future that they wanted to live. They were like us, and we are in so many ways like them. We really are. Hezekiah continues. He says in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 10, Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons... Do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister to him and burn incense. Then the Levites arose, as it says, and they we get a little snapshot of their number and who was who was from who, and they're laying out their credentials as real priests. And this was very important for them to do because in Israel 
They had a fake priesthood. It was phony. And they were not based on the family, the line of Aaron and the family of Levi. But then we pick it back up in verse 15. He says, And they gathered their brethren and sanctified themselves and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. And then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple of the Lord to the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it to the brook Kidron. Now they began to sanctify on the first of the month, the first day of the month. And on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord. So they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days. And on the sixteenth day of the first month, they were finished. Then they went to the king, Hezekiah, and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar, of burnt offerings with its articles, and the table of showbread with its articles. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast aside in his transgression, we have prepared and sanctified. And there they are before the altar of the Lord. Why did they do all this? Does it make it look pretty? Is it just to clean it up? It's, well, it's kind of an embarrassment. Tidy your room. This cleanup had a purpose. There was a purpose behind this. They had done all this work to, as we read in verse 19, prepare it. They prepared that place. They were preparing it for use. They put it back into service. They restored it so that it would be fit again for the the work for the temple of God to function, to be a dwelling place for him. They were preparing it. Sure, there were sacrifices. Yes, there were offerings and incense and prayers for healings. And I'm sure festivals of joy and praise. But don't lose sight of the fact that they were preparing it so that God could dwell in it. The site, that holy place, was prepared. It was the house of God, prepared for him. His dwelling place amongst the people. Just like you and I. We are called first and foremost as God's dwelling place. He wants to live with us in us. Above everything else, this is where he wants to make his abode. He has joined with us in the temple of our mind and heart and made our home, his home, here with us. One of my favorite scriptures is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You've heard it so many times, but it's a beautiful passage. He says, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, the temple of God. The temple of God needs a priesthood? 
Why? Why are we being called to be priests in this temple that we are? So that we can offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And dropping down to verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Prepared for a purpose. Prepared. Not just filled with spiritual ornaments. Not just filled with even biblical knowledge. Not for its, just the sake of that. But as the dwelling place of God. Now the temple of God, Solomon's temple was designed to be a symbol. A flag. An image to the world. God lives here. This is where he is. And if you need him, remember Solomon's prayer, anyone could pray to that house and he would hear. So we should be that same symbol, that same point where which the spirit of God dwells so that anyone can come to God through us. They see Christ in us. And Peter takes that understanding and puts it on us, puts it on each one of us. He says that we are his own special people, that we may proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. <laughs> Just what a train of phrase. But isn't it a marvelous light that we are called into? Once you were not a people. You were cast off. You were gone. You were far away. But now you are the people of God who had once obtained mercy, but now, once had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Hezekiah and the Levites and the priests and the people had done all of this restoration, done all of this work for a reason. As I said, to bring that house back into use. In fact, one of the things that they wanted to do with this house was to celebrate Passover. But it took so long to clean up, and the time in which they started, they missed it, as we know. But that's the beautiful thing with Passover, isn't it? There's another chance. One month later, you can do it again if you missed it. So, that's what Hezekiah and the people determined to do. But there was another challenge ahead for Hezekiah and his people. Because not only had they had forgotten the temple, and that it had fallen into disuse, but they had forgotten the customs. They had forgotten how to do things. How to keep Passover. They'd forgotten it. The people did not know what they were doing. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, in verse 13, it says, Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. 
you know, all these pagan altars, they took them away. This is good stuff. They're restoring. And they're getting rid of that fake, false, worthless religion, whatever it may be. But then there was trouble. Because in the midst of all this good work, we read this. He says, Then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed. What? What's going on? And sanctified themselves and brought, brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. And the priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. They had not prepared themselves. Therefore, the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify, sanctify them to the Lord. For the multitude of the people, for many from Ephraim and Manasseh and Issachar and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. You know, it's funny. It's something we might not realize maybe as it happens to us, but when we allow this temple of God to fall into disuse, when we allow it to just not be inhabited almost, when we let it fall into disuse, when we don't keep it clean of idols, when we don't sanctify it, when we don't offer that incense of prayer, when we don't do those things, we don't realize that how we speak, how we conduct ourselves, the manner in which we do things also begins to change. We don't realize that we forget how to behave. And we can perhaps even think that we're doing good when we're not. We may be well-intentioned, but just like these, we forget God, forget the temple, forget the dwelling place of God. We also forget how to praise, how to pray, how to practice that faith. That's what happened to them. And it's interesting that they point out specifically Ephraim and, and Manasseh and some of these other tribes. They were even more screwed up than the rest of them. They had had much longer periods of corruption and absence from the temple and from Jerusalem. They thought they were doing good, but they were not. And it's easy for us to do that and not even be aware of it. Not even be aware of it. And that's the scary part, that we don't even realize that it's happened to us. We're oblivious. So, is there any hope for them? Is there any hope for us if we fall into that? If we've gotten ourselves so far off track, so out of practice, that we don't even know that we have fallen down again and that we're wretched and poor and naked, is there any hope? Well, with God, there is always two things. 
an intercessor and a way in which for him to intercede. There always is. And that's what happens here. When Hezekiah and the people, and in the midst of all this Passover and unleavened bread, in the midst of all this, we find something completely out of place. And you might even read over it. Especially if you have the King James version of the Bible. But the New King James, something just jumped right out at me when I was reading this. In fact, it's something we're about to observe. So here the people were unclean, unsanctified, ill-prepared, in spite of their best efforts, and they began to suffer for it. As it says in verse 18, Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement. Atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. In the middle of Passover, in the midst of all of that, there was a desperate need for atonement. Isn't that fascinating? I just found that so fascinating that in the midst of this, isn't Passover enough? Weren't they being covered? Weren't their sins, their dark, deepest sins being cleansed by the blood of the Lamb? Why was that not sufficient? Well, with Passover, there are things that you have to do, certainly for them, but even for us, aren't there? There are things that we have to do. We have to put leaven out of our homes. We have to spiritually take in, as we take in that bread and that wine, and put the blood on the doorposts of our hearts. There's things we do. And we have to eat, as we know, unleavened bread. We have things to do in Passover. They thought they were doing right. They thought that they were obeying God. But they were not. So there was still a need for something else. See, God, through their sanctification process, through the rituals of Passover, was leading them, trying to get them to understand the price, the cost of sin. And also trying to lead them to a spiritual understanding of what he was doing. So even with Passover, though, it's sometimes easy for us start to think that we have a part to play in our salvation. If we do it just right, if we keep God's holy days just so, then we're somehow part of that. And there are many, not here, fortunately, but there are many church groups that would say as such, or at least act as such. Is that true? Is that right? That we can do something to help obtain our salvation? What happens here in Hezekiah's prayer should completely and utterly explode that idea. It should be blown away. 
any idea that we have any part in earning our salvation, even in the smallest way. Notice again what he says. May the good Lord provide atonement. Which, when you look at the Hebrew, if you look at that Hebrew word, it means exactly what you think it means. It's the same word that's used when the day of atonement is ordained and set up in Leviticus 16. When God gives the instructions for observing the day of atonement, it's the same word. It is unearned, unmerited pardon. Atonement. Or as the New Testament writers would say, it is grace. It is just God's grace. The people desired a good thing. They wanted to do right. They wanted to observe the Passover. They knew they needed it. But they didn't even know where to start. Just like us sometimes. We have in the past, and perhaps we may be again in such trouble, in such despair, in such a spiritual state that we just don't know which way is up. It can happen. But when it does happen, there is always, as I said before, an intercessor and a way in which God can intercede. We cannot do anything to earn our salvation. Not one thing which is exactly why we've been given such a wonderful gift in atonement of unmerited pardon of grace. Hezekiah says, May the Lord, may the good Lord provide an atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. We just have to seek him. Well, not only that, it's actually a little back from that. Because it's not just that we all we have to do is seek him. We just have to prepare to seek him. <laughs> it's like we just have to get ready to seek him. And he is there. Ready. With the atonement. Even while we are preparing to seek him, he finds us and gives us that atonement. So as we look towards next Sabbath, let's use this time to prepare, to get ready. As we're thinking about celebrating atonement, let's clean out the temple. Let's brush up the debris. Place all the ornaments on their stands and tables. Let's get ready for atonement. Let's prepare our hearts to seek him and realize that we will not be doing anything on atonement. Right? You won't be eating or drinking. You will not be sustaining yourself on atonement. There is nothing that we can do. It is God who provides atonement to us. And by the way, the Lord listened to Hezekiah and he healed the people. 